a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Our next guest is Professor Marion Baird. Marion is the Professor of Gender and Employment Relations, Head of the Business School's Discipline of Work and Organisational Studies and Co-Director of the Women, Work and Leadership Research Group at Sydney University. And in case you haven't picked up, She's got a particular interest. I wonder if you can guess what it is. And you know, that interest of hers has been an absolute boon for somebody like me who wrote for so many years in the media about women and work. And the thing about Marion is she's a real pioneer in this area, absolutely forged a a complete sort of area of speciality. And she's fantastically well-informed and has done amazing research on women's lives. And makes no bloody apologies for it either. No, she doesn't. Welcome, Marion. Fantastic to have you here. Now, your title used to be Professor of Employment Relations at Sydney Uni, but it changed a while ago to Professor of Gender and Employment Relations. Why was that? That's right. Well, I remember the day actually really clearly because I was at a a conference and there was a panel of mostly men talking about work and talking about how people don't actually, academics don't get involved in policy debates and they don't really know what's going on. And I was sitting there thinking, what world are you living in? And don't you know what your peers are doing? You know, there are plenty of women in the room. And someone said something and and I stood up and said, look, Basically, I think you're all wrong. There are plenty of us who are doing the work um, that's policy related, that affects people's lives. And then someone said, I don't know, something about titles that, you know, no one's willing to take them on board, really call themselves what they are. And I had thought about that because the university system is a bit weird. When you become, when you are promoted to professor, they ask you, what are you professor of, unless it's a nominated chair when you take that on anyway. So at the time, and I was in a department that was called Work and Organisational Studies, had been Industrial Relations, I just sort of thought I had to adopt the name of the department virtually. So I became Professor of Employment Relations. But after that conference and on that particular day, I stood up and said, actually, from now on, I'm going to call myself Professor of Gender and Employment Relations because that's what I do. And also, you've not only done that, you've Mm. done it incredibly effectively for a long time. And I I can attest to this because, Marianne, um, you did have to put up with many phone calls from me over the years. That's a delight. Been a pleasure. And you've always been incredibly consistent and a wonderful advocate. I wondered, did Mm. economics, was that something that you were interested in from early on? Yeah, yeah. it was. So when I went to university, as many women of our generation did, the options to study, I mean, they were there, but I didn't know about them. So I got a scholarship in education to become a teacher. But then I thought, no, I won't do an arts degree. I had done economics at school and I really liked it. And I thought, okay, if I do an economics degree, it'll sort of make me a bit different and then I'll go into school teaching, which I did want to do. And I did become a school teacher, so that was fine. In the course of doing the economics degree, I also did a major in industrial relations and I really, really found that fascinating. But at the time, there was almost no gender in that course. But there was a lot about 
work and economics wage setting institutional arrangements. And through that, I think my sort of interest determination grew. But I didn't take on the gender angle until much later in my life. And why? Why did you get involved in the gender? Yeah, well, first of all, I became a high school teacher and that was fantastic and I enjoyed it. Then for a short period of time, I worked for one of the teachers' unions in Australia. Then I was out of work because I had moved into state following my husband, as one did. And then I had four children. And then I returned to study. And I did a PhD in a very straight up and down mainstream, what was then workplace economics, industrial relations area, high commitment work systems. But it was a sense of I had to prove I could do the job on the grounds of other men in the field. Where did you do that? At Sydney University. Yeah. So here's another moment in my life. I had handed, I'd submitted my PhD. I hadn't got the reports yet. And I was sitting at my computer and I read a report that had said women in what was formerly um, a government owned operation, the Commonwealth Employment Service, had been transferred to a new organisation, had been privatised by the government. Mm. And in the privatisation process, the new employer could claim that they should have different terms and conditions of employment. So it's a fairly technical argument. And what they went to the Industrial Relations Commission with at the time was the removal of paid maternity leave. Mm. Oh. Even though these workers were exactly the same workers, doing exactly the same job, they now had a different employer And that employer decided to remove that condition of employment. And I was fairly outraged when I read that. So it would only affect the female employees. Basically, that's right. Mm. Um, And most of them were of childbearing age. They had worked. They had worked for the Commonwealth Public Service, and they now worked for a private Mm. company. So when I read that, I just thought, well, first of all, that was. a shock to me that that could happen in the system we were working in. And at the same time, there was mounting, this sort of mounting pressure on women to return to the workforce. So the two things stood to me in clear contrast. I was thinking, how unfair is it that governments are calling on women to return to work at the same time as they're removing their conditions of work? Yeah. Mm. So then I thought, okay, that's going to be what I work on. And I just just decided that day, that's it, we're going to get this policy. And you've, you've done an amazing amount of work that, that finally, after many, many years, yeah. and I think it's worth pointing this out, um, that these things do not happen overnight, but the National Paid Parental Leave Scheme, which we finally got a few years ago, was in gestation uh, for an awfully long time. What a time. good word to use. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Couldn't help myself. But I know you were really pivotal and you brought together lots of disparate groups to get them on the same page and get that through finally. Because we were one of the only countries in the world, certainly of developed countries, that did not have a national paid scheme. That's right. That was an incredible act of persistence and advocacy. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I, You know, when you're doing those things, if you've got a clear outcome in mind, you just keep working on it. It was 1999 that I realised this was happening and I started doing the research. But of course, once you start working in that area, you realise there's lots of other people who have got similar concerns. And 
my aim was to say, well, let's not work against each other because there were many different forms of a scheme that you could get. And you're right, Catherine, only the USA and Australia had mm. no paid And the USA still has And none. they still don't. That's right. And you also realise you can't do that sort of thing alone. Policy change is of that nature is an enormous task. And Australian women had been trying to introduce paid parental leave since the 1930s. So there's been this sort of waves of action and never actually being able to get it through Parliament. Yes, so, I mean, I I felt um, my role was the academic. I could provide the research and then others could do other work and we worked together. Mm. When you say the word industrial, whether it's tied to relations or not, yes, the image is very masculine. Mm. There is, it's a sort of hyper-masculinised yeah. idea. And indeed, I mean, Australia has had a proud and rather unique um, history of industrial relations and industrial action and uh, unionism and workers' rights and all that kind of thing, but really bedrock blokey. Yes. All the way through. Yes. Now, Sally McManus is doing a great deal to change that image, I think, at the moment. But do you think that was part of the problem with women getting different benefits because there's this pseudo-equality, isn't there, which says, well, if men don't get it, then why should women? That's where we went astray, I think, with the word equality. Yeah. You know, that question, um, Jane, really taps into one of my own personal dilemmas, I think. My father was a proud unionist and his philosophy was, and he, you know, he would hold family meetings where we discussed this, one of six children, and he wanted to ensure that everyone knew what was going on. His argument was that a man must be able to earn enough to look after his family and his children. Therefore, he needs to be paid a good wage. Now, that is the classic harvester model in Mm, Australia, and it's got a lot going for it, but it has that it's about the man being the breadwinner. So when I then came along and he encouraged me to go to university, he encouraged me to demonstrate, he he encouraged all of that, then had to say, but I want different rights for women, Dad, and your union has been very conservative. That caused some issues. But Mm. then he became really on board and understood Mm. that this is an industrial struggle. So what I experienced in my family was what I think the whole system in Australia was experiencing. Mm. For years and years and years, the Commission had made decisions that really did privilege men, men's work, let's put it that way, men's work. And it was very hard for that movement to say, well, now we need to recognise part-time work, we need to recognise other conditions that mean women are going to be at work as well, equal pay. So there's that constant tension between... and. I get that in a sense, between protecting jobs and conditions that had been hard fought for and seeing that the women's sort of issues were going to undermine those. Of mm. course, they don't have to, but that was sometimes the perceived threat. That mm. was the fear. That was the fear, yeah. I read a very interesting article mm. um, 
which was grappling with this phenomenon that people have talked about quite a lot, yeah. that 52% of white women who voted in the American election, presidential election, voted for Trump. And mm. they were using very much that kind of argument that, in fact, those women recognised that due to the deep sexist nature of our workplace anyway, their husbands would always earn more money than they would. So they were voting for their husband's pay packet, not their own. Do you think that that still goes on to some extent in Australia as well? Uh, look, I can't speak from a, an evidence base in the sense of I haven't done the research on that, but I think I have read a number of papers that suggest that women in Australia historically, and I'm going to put use historically as recent past because I want to move to some new research mm-hmm. we've just done. One of the things, if it's their job or their husband's job, they'd prefer their husband to have a job. And there's that fear that if the husband or the male loses their job, not only does it undermine their income, but it also undermines the status of yeah. the man and it then starts to undermine the family unit and the community. And that's, you know, I think that is something we have to come to terms with politically and we need to recognise that people who feel their jobs are threatened or their working conditions are threatened will have a tendency to want to protect the system that's protected mm. them to date or or they think will protect them. Yeah. That's why um, some of that research too around the fact that if a woman is out earning her partner or indeed her male partner may be unemployed, he still doesn't do significant amounts of housework. In fact, may do very little, even though she may be the one who's in the workplace. Well, in fact, the sociology literature on that calls that gender role deviance and women will actually often do more housework in order to prove that they're Mm. still carrying out their traditional role. So, you know, when we are talking about industrial conditions, but we're talking about deeply embedded and ingrained attitudes to men and women at work and our communities. Mm -hmm. And are we also talking about, and we don't like to Mm. mention this, I don't think, Mm. but class? Absolutely. Because it strikes me that middle-class women are probably on board with the idea of all the protection, you know, they have a right to work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if we're still, you know, to fight for the right to be in the corporate boardroom is one thing. To fight for the right to be on the factory floor is quite another. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really, um, I think that's a legitimate question and a debate we don't actually have mm. enough in Australia. So I'll try and keep my answer simple, but there are two parts to it. One is I don't support creating jobs that are bad jobs. So what's the point of sending a woman into terrible working conditions, low pay, unpredictable hours, maybe it would be better if she stayed at home and did looked after the children and the house if that in her unit and life was more enriching. Mm. Having said that, the research we've done just recently shows that young men and women in Australia today, so I think there is a gender, I won't call it revolution, but a gender shift definitely happening. Young men and women in Australia today who are parents or going to become parents, seek equality at home. So they want gender equal relationships at home. They are then saying the workplace needs to provide the policies to enable that Mm. to happen. So they're making that connection, which is very interesting. In that research, we made sure we interviewed and surveyed women who are low pay, low skill, high pay, high skill, rural and metro. And there's 
no difference by class or skill. Now, that actually is different to the research that we've had to date and says something, the story we've been told to date is class, lower class women or lower skilled women don't want those jobs. In fact, they're Mm. saying, I need to make a decision about my career as well. And unless we have policy change, I can't do both. And if I have to make a choice, I think I'll choose work over having children. Mm, Interesting. Isn't it fascinating? Very interesting. And so I think what we're seeing there is genuine shift occurring. The one group who aren't thinking that way, and this probably won't surprise both Mm. of you, are young men who don't have children. Yeah. So young men with children, young women with children, young women without children are all thinking in a similar way. Young men without children, it's as if they haven't actually cottoned on to what's going to happen yet. Well, there is some evidence that those young men Mm. without children have very still... A substantial number have very conservative views about who should do domestic division of labour, for example, and so on. On all of that, Marion, one of the things that um, I've spoken to you before and I think it's fascinating, you set up the Women, Work and Leadership Research Group, Mm. which has gone from strength to strength and many of us kind of uh, attended on a regular basis, wonderful academics from overseas and so on. Where did that start? Where did you get that idea from? Well, that started in about 2005 when I was sitting in a business school at the university And thinking, well, I'm doing this work on women. I know there are women in the arts faculty and law and science having similar interests about the changing world, about women's work. We need a place where they can come together and we can share our research. So that was the first thought. But my second one goes back to our first question about working collaboratively Mm. with people outside of the university. We need a place where that research gets shared with practitioners, with policymakers, with the press, with journalists, because... There's no point in talking to ourselves all the time. So they were the two aims, really provide a research hub for anyone who was interested and very inclusive. It didn't matter if you were a professor or a PhD student or an undergraduate student and making sure that anyone who wanted to attend our seminars could. Mm. And that's been actually, you know, just fun to do as well as incredibly rewarding. The um, one you had last year. Yeah. Uh, Professor Christine Williams yes, from yeah. Texas, unbelievable about me too. Yeah. Fantastic. It was she a spoke stand-up. so brilliant. Wasn't mm. she brilliant? What did she mm. say? She's been looking at workplace sexual harassment and violence mm. for most of her career. She was gobsmacked by me too. She said, I did not see that yeah. coming. That absolutely amazed me. Um, she was she was incredible. She just went through it. She went through it in quite a lot of detail, the impact, the differences between places like the US and Australia with our defamation laws. Yep. Um, yes. The yeah. difference that would be made to things like non-disclosure agreements and so on for employees, mm. which is something that's playing out in Australia at it the is. moment. That's as Craig right. Jenkins, our sex discrimination commissioner, conducts her inquiry. review and mm. inquiry and has asked mm. a number of large corporations, including some that are headed by male champions of change, to waive the non-disclosure so people can stand up and explain what's been happening around sexual harassment. Mm. And guess what? Some of those companies have said no, mm. which is really interesting. So mm. it, she's, Christine is a workplace academic, yes, but she yeah. was fantastic. She was fantastic. And I think what she brought to the discussion was sort of a forensic analysis of these of the movement, but also of everything that leads up to yeah. a movement like that. Yeah. So... Um, and our, you know, as a university, we have that enormous um, privilege of being able to tap into 
work that's being done around the world. Universities are very much international um, organisations. And so it's great to bring people out, but also um, to have other people just from Sydney, Melbourne, Victoria, you know, Perth, wherever they want to come from. And people from yeah. companies yeah. and public oh, sector. Yeah. It's, anyone, it's a great anyone mix. off the street, it's a great, great mix. mix. When you yeah. say people, do you mean women? We get, it is... <laughs> Probably most sessions are 90% women, but we do get some men. Well, you said at one point we can't just keep speaking to ourselves, but, you know, always we talk in these interviews and it seems to me that women, most women, by the sound of your research, particularly recently, have come on board with this. The very fact that there are those outliers of the young men who haven't noticed the world has changed. Yes. And the fact that whenever there's anything about women, and I guarantee you the listeners to this bloody podcast will be overwhelmingly (laughs) women. How the hell do we get men to pay attention to this? Yeah. Well, for a long time I decided that I wasn't going to fight the argument for men. And I just thought, no, you know, it's been enough of a struggle to get better conditions for women, that why should I and others who are already overworked take on the men's struggle as well? So that's been another point of sort of mm, how do I deal with that question because that comes up a lot. The last couple of years there's been a bit of a change. I've noticed more men contact me to ask for research or assistance with um, change they want to introduce that write articles in newspapers. So there's a you know, there's a there's the genesis of a movement there. And now I am doing research on men and flexibility and paternity leave. So I suppose I've come to that point. I'm not going to necessarily run their argument for them, but it's important to understand what's happening there so we can now start to address that. Yeah, we have to get men involved. Mm. More men do raise the issue now, but of course they are the men who already were interested perhaps yeah. and now feel they can start to speak out about it. So, Jane, it's a difficult one. Yeah. It's not an easy one and I'll come back another day when I've got a solution yeah. <laughs> a real answer to well, that question. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure any of yeah. us have a solution no, to it, but it's... I think we've got, if there's almost, I have this sense in which I feel like over the last 50 years women have changed beyond all recognition. Mm, yeah. If you look at women today and compare them to the women of 50 years ago, yeah, it's chalk and cheese. But actually, have men changed much at all? Mm. Oh, I think the men I know probably have. I think there's it's, been a shift. I think been, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely slow. I think it's nascent, as you mentioned, around yeah. the corporate or business world. Yes. I think it's there. Um, maybe it's because I'm a trained sceptic. Yeah. I suspect. <laughs> How do you get I that training? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this is nothing to do with a massive change of heart. I think it is to do with burning platforms. Um when I worked on an advisory board for the Defence Force, the reason that review happened was the Skype affair. Mm, right. Yeah. Uh, so I think at the yeah. moment, Me Too worries the living daylights out of quite a lot yeah. of corporate uh, And board types. directors in particular. Absolutely. Yeah. And they yep. should yep. be because yeah. that is potentially a huge risk factor for them. Yeah. We've seen it. We've mm. seen how it can unwind. And uh, mm. so I think that there is that. But the, the sort of the more charitable part of me thinks that um, quite a lot of men are kind of mid-career, and you mentioned it before, mm. they have mm. kids 
they have partners who are working. Yeah. Yes. Now, they may not of their own volition say, please, can I work flexibly? And I hear this all the time, by the way. It's not just me making it up. Um, they come in and say, I'm going to work flexibly because my wife says I have to. Um because she's earning and they have no choice. So I think I see a number of uh, fraying around the edges there. It's not wholesale, but I think it's shifting. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. The other thing, to go back to class, um, mm. is that um, some research being done in the UK, actually by a visitor, Colette Fagan, who came out recently too, shows that men in working class jobs have when you survey them, they do look after the children. Mm. And often it's because their shift hours make that both possible and necessary because both partners are often doing shift work. Some research we did some time ago was men in a big corporate in Australia, they use rostering as their flexibility. So I think what also might happen in different groups is that they have a slightly different language and in their own minds a different rationale for what they're doing, but the end result is that they're working their lives around to fit the family commitments and other commitments as mm. well. Because what worries me, I mean, having yeah. just done the research for accidental feminists, yes. and basically yes. what I'm looking at is how the way we've run workplaces up until now in the gendered way that we've done it, the very gender-dominated industries are lower paid, women work, you know, predominantly part-time. We've got one of the highest rates of part-time work in the Western world or, and dominated by women, is that particularly if the marriage breaks down at some point, those women, the women of our generation, are finding themselves in dire straits in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. They can't get employment because we still have really wholesale ageism, particularly against women in the workforce, and they are staring down the barrel of a poverty-stricken old age, and that is the cumulative effect of them doing the right thing. They tried to juggle. I often think my generation, our generation, we didn't realise we were doing it. We traded flexibility so that we could do the family and work for poverty in our old age. We didn't know that's what we were trading, but it's sort of turning out that way. Uh, what are we doing to avoid another generation having to make those kinds of choices? Well, I mean, I think if you look at if you do look at the labour market data, the biggest increase in workforce participation is amongst mature age women. 45 and up, especially the 45 to 55-year-old group. Now, that doesn't mean they're working full-time. And in fact, the rate of full-time employment in Australia has not changed in 40 years. So all the increase in women's workforce participation, which we have seen and which has actually changed the face of our workforce and our homes, is through part-time work. Now, whether that's good or bad is also an issue I feel like we need more research on, Jane. Mm -hmm. But we do know that the result of that is the pay gap and a superannuation gap. And, and so what we have to do is find ways to compensate for that. And I suppose that goes back to my original desire to have paid maternity leave to at least compensate women financially for that period of time. The policy to introduce superannuation on top of yeah. the paid maternity leave is essential and yeah, it's critical. Totally. And it was part of the original Abs that's uh, right. aim, wasn't that's it? That's right. It, now, a little 
Bird told me. Yeah. No, I'll oh. fess up. Professor Ray Cooper, oh. your wonderful <laughs> colleague. Yes, my wonderful colleague, yes. And I thought this was fascinating and she, she yeah. told me this a while ago. We were having right. a chat about um, her career and so on and she said she went back to full-time mm. work when she'd had her kids and she said one of the people who probably suggested that to her was yeah. Marion Baird. Mm. Um, and she it made absolute sense. She explained it to me and she said, you know, if I went back part-time, I'd miss out on opportunities and progression and so on. It's a dilemma. I worked part-time for a yeah. long time. Oh, me I completely too. understand the dilemma that's faced. But I wondered about yes. that advice from yeah. you. Yeah. Well, don't forget, we're in a special sort of industry academia. So there is a lot of autonomy. Um, and that works, it cuts both ways. Our job is never ending. So, you know, we're paid for 37 and a half hours a week. That's our rate. But, of course, no one I know works that. I mean, there's lots of jobs where people don't work their standard rate. I worked part-time through all my children, but I also reflected on it and thought, really, what have I done by doing that? I've probably undermined my superannuation for the future and I've restricted my own career, although I don't begrudge that now. So that sort of put that in the past. But when I look at my younger colleagues and Ray's a great colleague, she's sort of the next generation coming through, I did say to her, come back full-time because you're not going to benefit by by going part-time and I don't think you'll do any less work. You'll do the same amount of work. So come back full-time. And she wasn't um, annoyed about that advice, by the no, way, no, Mary, no. and I should, no, no, I should no. hasten no, no. to it. And we've talked about yeah. But I do, you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, gosh, am I driving people too hard by saying that? But I do recognise it can have that autonomy over your hours because I know a lot of women we talk to even if they could work full-time, they want to say in their own mind, I've got one day a week where I'm not obliged to answer the phone. Now, that's a work ethic. Women have a very strong work ethic. Yeah. We always feel we have to earn our right to exist. Exactly. We haven't got there yet. The other problem, the glaring thing, the thing that gets in the way is, of course, the eye-watering cost of childcare. Yes. Because I just know in my own daughter's case, Mm. a teacher, uh, she did the calculation as to how much it would cost for her to return to work. For them as a family, for her to return to work with two children in full-time childcare, and in fact, she would not only not earn any money, she would be paying for the right to go to work. Now, that is a huge disincentive, mm. and it's it's making women and families make the decision that the woman will stay at home. And there's a whole body of theory and uh, called household economics, and that Becker's household economics, about those trade-offs that people make in the in the family. They do that bargaining. They do that calculation. My other recommendation to women is to say, try not to do it just on your own. You know, don't, just as Catherine's sort of saying, don't claim it against your own income only and also think about what you're losing as a result of doing that. Having said that, I know it's not an easy decision. If it's and that, then keep the mortgage repayments up because... Yes, yeah, you've got to have a house, a roof over your head, as exactly. it were. Yeah, which goes to the issue of... If governments, and, you know, it's not just the Australian government, I've just been in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, the Malaysian government wants more women to enter the workforce. Any country you go to, this is the agenda. The IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, it's almost unfortunate. Women are the saviour of our economies. And if, and they're all saying we want more women to return to the paid workforce, 
the only way women can do that if there are policies that enable that to happen. And childcare mm. and parental leave are the two that have to be in place. How do we not get exhausted? Because I think one yeah. of the problems is oh. women are still doing three jobs yeah. to most men's one if they've got children and are in the paid workforce. Yeah. They still have to take on the responsibility of ageing parents. Oh, you know, don't talk to me about that one. I know. Yes. So, and we're saying to them, and you have to stay eternally vigilant at making sure that none of these gains slip backwards. I know. It can feel... I think women are exhausted. Yes. I think they are. And I know there are days when I am absolutely, and you wake up, you think, I cannot go through this again, you know. How do you do it? You have a laugh, you have friends, you share the load that way. And there you do get a certain energy from from the fight in a way. Yes. You know, but I think people have to find a, a balance that enables them. A balance is an awful word, isn't it? You've just got to give yourself some time sometimes. You've got to say, I need an hour to walk somewhere or watch TV, whatever it is. Do yoga, whatever it is. That Anger's worked a lot for me. Do you yes, know? Oh, anger works for me too. Anger. And me too, Catherine. Mm. And a lot of time I, I have women saying, oh, I'm so, I said, get angry. Yeah. Don't get upset. Get angry because anger is a much better driver of your emotional energy sometimes. I know it can get to a tipping point, but. Mm. Well, it's outwards directed, it's outwards. not inward directed. Yeah, that's right. That's mm. right. And that's what Me Too has done. Me Too yeah. has taken yeah. anger for women. Mm. And said, it's acceptable, you have a right to be angry. This has happened to yeah. us all. Yeah. And that, I think, is the major yeah. change right now. I do too. I think that's been a seminal change. Yes. I really do. Yes. It's, it's yes. amazing. Well, I think yeah. we should all agree. Let's, let's be furious let's together. Be, let's, let's be angry together. <laughs> and thank you so much Fantastic. for your anger over so many years. Yes. A pleasure and thank you. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.